The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. We'll start with a short sitting quietly, and then I'll do some guided meditation, and then after that we'll do the welcome.
So then as we continue this session of meditation, <coughs> I'd like to direct your attention to your body. <coughs> Take a few moments <clears throat> to explore the sensations of your body. The different feelings and sensations that you find in your body. Feeling the rib cage and the belly move as you breathe. Perhaps feeling the back rib cage <coughs> expand and contract slightly as you breathe. And then ever so gently, take some deeper breaths. And as you breathe in more deeply, feel the expansion, expansion contraction of your rib cage or shoulders <clears throat> as if it's a massage from the inside. Kneading, massaging. And as you exhale, to see if you can soften the body. Gently breathing a little bit more fully and softening, and relaxing with the body. It doesn't have to actually relax, but at least maybe there's a wave of softening, a wave of softening through the body. softening around what is there. And then letting your breath return to normal. Continuing to feel the body breathing in and breathing out. And if possible, as you breathe in and out, see if that rhythm of breathing can help you to open up your heart, 
open up a sense of sensitivity, receptivity in your body. As if your body is an open door to feel and to sense whatever is present. Noticing what what areas of your body have the most sensation or most alive or energized. And whatever is there, the sensations, open up, receive those. And as you breathe in and out, see if you can stay with the breath in such a way that you settle your awareness deeper and deeper into your body. Maybe as you exhale, you settle in into the heartwood of your body, the heart center, kind of like a pebble would, very light pebble would slowly settle through a pond water and then settle on the pond bottom. As you breathe in and breathe out, see if you can let your awareness settle in, 
sink down. As you exhale, to let go of your thoughts. So there's more awareness that can settle in, sink down. And as we continue sitting a few more minutes, stay with your breath, breathing with your body. Stay with your body. See if there can be a greater sense of allowing or permission for whatever you feel in your body to be there. It's okay. Breathe with it. Feel it. Make room for it in the body as if the body has lots of space to feel itself as it is. And then as you stay connected to your body, breathing, feeling, sensing, I'll bring up a concept, an idea, for you to feel or to reflect on or to have it resonate within you to see how it resonates in this body.
How do you respond to this idea that I bring bring up? In the context of being connected to your body, how do you relate to the idea of stealing? of stealing. What happens in your body as the concept of stealing is evoked? What is your relationship? What's your connection to the activity, the practice, the idea of stealing? You can take a few deeper breaths again, connect more fully to your body, and as you exhale, perhaps you can let go of any thoughts, extra feelings that might be there. Just like spend a few breaths letting go. And then feeling. And then feeling your body against the chair or the cushion, the floor. Taking a few deep breaths, feeling a fuller connection to your body. And then when you're ready, you can open your eyes.
Welcome to <clears throat> a day on stealing. <laughs> so welcome to our Dharma practice day. And um, for those of you who might be new to these days, there are days where we explore some Dharma topic in a variety of ways while in community with others. So some of it will be meditation, some of it will be my teaching, some of it will be um, or a lot of it will be a chance for you to talk amongst yourselves about these kinds of topics that we address, address um, explore it in different ways so this you can deepen your understanding of both the topic but also deepen understanding of yourself in relationship to the topic. Um, basically, we'll have four sessions today, um, two in the morning, two in the afternoon. We'll have a break after the first one, and probably in about half an hour, and then um, have lunch, come back for the third session, and then break, and then have a fourth session. And um, an important part of these days is sense of community. So we'll have um, we'll be talking between the two, all of you, and then uh, during lunch you can stay, and we'll set up tables, and you can ch- uh, chat and talk over lunch, either continuing the theme of the day or whatever talking you feel you'd like to do. Um, And uh, the theme for these Dharma practice days for this year is uh, mindfulness and ethics, a mindful approach to training in ethics. And um, each day hopefully stands on its own if this is the first and only time you're coming, but also they work together. And what we're doing is looking at uh, Buddhist ethics uh, uh, through the, partly through the lens of uh, some of the ethical guidelines that Buddhism offers, and in particular, a, gui- a set of guidelines called the Ten Skillful Actions. Uh, yesterday, someone was talking to me, and they called them the Ten uh, uh, Courses of Wise Action. The um, um, and so. Um, uh, the first one, which we did last uh, month, is uh, not causing, not harming, not causing injury, usually translated as not killing. And today, the topic is uh, not taking what is not given. Uh, it's a little bit unusual English for saying what ordinarily, ordinarily in English we might call stealing. But uh, people who teach this uh, particular guideline like to think of it as having a higher standard than not stealing because a standard is, um, if it's not offered, don't take it. So you don't just take, if no one offers something, don't assume that you can take it. Um, and um, so a little more care uh, of, uh, to not only care of people's possessions, but also in a sense, uh, caring for people's intentions and uh, people's relationship to you. And uh, only if it's offered, uh, is it okay to take. So it's a, I think, important precept. It's a rich one to explore. So that's what we'll explore today. <clears throat> um, so the idea overall for this series is, um, uh, you know, mindful approach to tr- training in ethics. And uh, the, uh, some of you may be here just because you like coming to Dharma practice days, <clears throat> but hopefully you're all here because also you're interested in this topic of training in ethics. 
And generally, the people who are interested in training ethics are ethical to begin with. <clears throat> then that, you know, that's kind of like why they're interested in it, perhaps. So, um, <clears throat> the, um, but uh, sometimes you know, the motivation is to become more ethical or to understand the nature of ethics um, uh, because we live in a society where ethics, ethical behavior is, has an important relevance. But there's always, you know, said to be room to be more ethical. And generally, when people practice meditation, <clears throat> uh, the desire to become ethical increases. The de- desire to be careful with our actions in such a way that our actions don't cause harm to anyone uh, becomes a more pertinent, more relevant, and more a motivating factor for people. And then how do we do it? Uh, how do we live in a more ethical way? Uh, how do we... Uh, for people who are fairly ethical already, the discussion then gets pretty nuanced. <clears throat> you know, so like not taking what not given, it means um, um, don't dominate a conversation because the, their people's time hasn't been given freely. So you have to be careful with that. Is it, you know, are, they, are, they offering their, are they really offering their attention or have you monopolized it? It um, you know, gets to be more nuanced and I think valuable to look at that. <clears throat> um, and then uh, the idea of connecting mindfulness and ethics is that um, mindfulness has, as I just mentioned, has something to do with ethics in that as we train in mindfulness, we tend to become more ethical, but also as we train in ethics, we tend to become more mindful. And uh, this, I was surprised by this when I was a monk in Burma. The, um, you know, I, I, um, I was into becoming a monk I thought I knew what it meant, you know, I had some relationship to the idea, but I didn't really consider all the 227 precepts, rules, the uh, codes of conduct, that uh, some more actually, that a, a monk is supposed to live by. I just took them for granted, like this is what you have to do if you're a monk, and that's, you know, it's like, I don't know, I didn't think about it more than that. And then I was surprised very quickly after the ordination to realize that all these rules were also mindfulness trainings. <clears throat> in order to live by these rules, I had to heighten my attention to the moment, to what was going on in the moment. And to give you a, maybe a very teeny example, maybe a little bit silly, but a little mix and maybe a nice story, that um, I was ordained, I think in the late morning, I believe, I don't remember so much anymore, but the late morning, by the afternoon, I was at a meditation center. So by the afternoon, I was back to doing my meditation. And, uh, you know, I was doing walking meditation in my new robes and um, walking back and forth. And there was another uh, uh, American there who was a monk, who'd been a monk for some years. And he came up to me while I was doing my walking meditation and stopped me and said, Gil, uh, you have to confess. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd been a monk for five hours or something. And what had I, what had what what had I done that requires conf- required confession? <laughs> um, and um, so you know, I asked him. You know, what <laughs> I mean, I I'd been ordained, and maybe I had a meal, and then I'd gone back to my room and meditated, and done walking meditation. I hadn't done much, right? Well, um, uh, one of the two hundred twenty-seven rules seems to be that um, the the hem of your robe has to be a straight, the lower hem, and not, you know, slopping up, falling down or something. <clears throat> so, 
you know, I had violated a rule right away. So it's very unusual for monks to take that kind of rule seriously enough you have to go and confess, you know, your hem slipped. Um, but this monk was kind of a zealot <laughs> around these kinds of monastic rules, so I had to go confess. But the, um, I, mean, I don't know who, I, maybe I confessed to him, I don't know what I did, but I certainly didn't go talk to my teacher. <laughs> and, um, but what it taught me was that, uh, you know, that oh, even this re- uh, uh, deserved my attention. And so I had to now be, uh, have a little heightened awareness of my robes and how they, you know, how they laid across my shoulder and how they worked. So uh, it required more mindfulness. And that increased mindfulness, the way I took it on, supported me in my practice. And so there are many rules like that where I had to be more attentive and more present as I went through the day. So these rules are mindfulness trainings. So the same thing like for the five uh, precepts for lay people, they can also be seen as mindful as trainings in mindfulness. As we become more mindful, it becomes more motivating to be ethical, live by the precepts. As we practice with the precepts, it supports our mindfulness. And luckily, there's kind of a wonderful loop that goes, right? They support each other and they can grow together. Um, it probably cannot be said enough <clears throat> that uh, generally in Buddhism, the emphasis on ethics is not rule-based, but rather training-based. So, I mean, certainly the, the, the focus on having a rule and living by it has a role in Buddhism, the ethical rule. I don't want to rule it out completely. But generally the emphasis is not so much on living by a rule because that becomes an external standard. And, uh, and the emphasis in Buddhist practice is to cultivate your inner life, to develop yourself. And so uh, the focus is on how does living ethically support your life, your inner life? How does it support you from harm? But also how does it support the training? Your training, your development, your growth. And so one of the very important ways of looking at ethics in Buddhism is as a vehicle for training, for developing yourself and unfolding. And so um, uh, rules can be seen to be about external conduct, whereas training has to do with the transformation of inner character. And so what Buddhism is really interested in is the transformation of inner character, to become someone who is ethical, not to be someone who is ethical. And the difference being, you know, not someone who uh, has to do something to be ethical, have to restrain themselves or do certain things, um, but rather it's a nature of who we are to be ethical. That, makes, that distinction makes sense? So that transformation is what the training is involved. For today, in looking at the second precept of not taking what's not given, I would like to organize the day around um, the, what's called the three trainings. And um, the three trainings, uh, since training is so important, uh, it's one kind of way of organizing the various kinds of practices and teachings in Buddhism. The first training is called sila, which is I'm, tra- I'm translating right now as ethics, virtue. The second is in samadhi, <coughs> samadhi, samadhi, which I'm translating as training of the inner life, the inner character, developing ourselves. 
And the uh, third uh, training is that of apanya, or wisdom, or understanding. And, um, and it's possible to look at the ethical precepts through the lens of these three trainings. The first, um, uh, uh, sila, or the ethical ethics, seeing it as ethics in and of itself, um, I'd like to, has a lot to do with creating safety for everyone, yourself and for others. The second one, the samadhi, the training part, has a lot to do with, um, with uh, well, samadhi has to do with training yourself, cultivating the inner growth that can happen. And, uh, and prajna, uh, panya, has to do with cultivating understanding. So we want to um, create safety, training opportunities for ourselves, and understanding. And those three lenses can help us understand um, the precept of taking what's not given. The first one, uh, kind of this, this way, the, what I'm calling sila today, <clears throat> has to do with our basin, basic decency. Our kind of basic humanity, basic decent way of treating each other is to um, live by basic moral guidelines. Not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to engage in sexual misconduct. The... Um, um, uh, it involves um, creating safety because uh, generally people who do unethical things live lives that cause harm to others so other people don't feel safe and they also uh, create less safety for themselves. Um, live by the sword, die by the sword is a dramatic way of saying that. The... Um, um, The samadhi part, I'll talk about in a second session today, and then the understanding part I'll talk about after lunch. And then the fourth session of these Dharma practice days this uh, year, I would like to try to um, discuss some larger um, issue around ethics that maybe is somehow related to the precept of the day. So not just personal, but also societal, some kind of issue that's up. So that's the plan for today. Um, so maybe that's enough of an introduction for now Um, what are some of the things that happened to some of you at the end of that meditation when I evoked the concept of stealing I apologize if that was kind of a sharp, sharp harsh contrast to where you were at in your meditation, but that was part of the point. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that. So, so any, anybody like to share? And uh, can, can we use the orange one rather than the pink one? I think the orange one works better. I found that when the idea of stealing was invoked, I felt a tightness in my chest and the heart area. So stealing uh, brought tightness in the chest. Thank you. If you can hold the mic um, horizontally, it works a little bit better. Yes. Uh, to be honest, when you said stealing... Closer? No, just closer. Stealing? Yeah. Um, 
I heard S-T-E-E-L-I-N-G because... Feel, you feel yourself. You, yeah, you'd been doing the body centering. Uh, makes sense, a lot of sense. And yeah. so I just was imagining my spine being very upright. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> and I was, I guess, pretty relaxed. So Great. when I thought about stealing, yeah. I didn't immediately have a reaction. I had to think about it a little bit. Uh, was it supportive? Did yeah. Great. So that that's beneficial. Great. Yeah, it was good so, information. Yeah. <laughs> it was like no problem. Ah, so some of you, rest of you also heard that heard it that way. No, no, okay. So someone else uh, who heard it E A. <laughs> I first heard what I thought you said was feeling. Feeling. Ah. And so I like that feeling. <laughs> And then you said it again, and I still heard it as feeling. And then the third time, I realized you were saying stealing. And it was like, oh, God, I'm not interested in stealing. (laughs) Um, So it was, uh, you know, a little journey for me. And um, the story you told about the monk speaking to you, that, that brought some sense of relaxation and humor and, um, you know, opening up to the topic. Uh, so, so I'm glad you told that story because now I'm really on board. <laughs> yeah, the pr- pronunciation of words and hearing it all. Um, the woman, I thought she wanted my love. It turned out she wanted my glove. <laughs> <laughs> I also felt about tightness and pressure on my chest, but more I noticed um, my face turned to a frown, and I could feel my brow kind of furrowing, because prior to that, I'd been trying to either be neutral or have a slight smile expression. Um, so it, it, I noticed it a lot in my facial muscles mm-hmm. the most. At the end of the guided meditation, when you asked us to look for sort of how we feel in, in our body or someplace, but what occurred to me was uh, comparing uh, stealing or taking what's not offered to generosity. And they appear to be opposite to me. And I know for sure how generosity makes me feel. Mm. And I'd like more of that <laughs> and less of what I might feel when I steal something or take what's not given. So. Great. So some of you may be contracted or felt pressure or tightness or fr- frowning with the concept of stealing. Um, could, could you imagine you would have a very different physical reaction if I had said generosity? Um, I was mostly dismayed to start the morning with stealing, so <laughs> there was a lot of conflict. I was like, really? I could use another cup of coffee before <laughs> I uh, face that one. Um, yeah, I think I have a confusing relationship to that word. Um, I had, you know, oh, it should be bad, but I've, 
recently had um, some um, actually dealing with people who are in my perception as actually taking money from me, not not paying my bills and whatever. Um, and and I've been going through a lot of, uh, do I pursue it? Do I add energy to the stealing? Do I resign myself? So I was going back and forth between being a lot of anger, resignation, letting go. Anger, resignation, letting go. So that's what I felt. Um, so I saw Dovey. A couple of more. One more. Well, and this is just a fact, since a lot of my relationship with Buddhism has centers around my feelings of I'm not living a good enough life, mm. I immediately started thinking of all the ways that things I do might be seen or I might see them as taking what's not given and stuff. So I immediately started judging myself mm. and sort of I'm very going down that path. That's great. I'm very glad. It's not that. a very skillful path, but it's a lot of what I do. Uh-huh. Well, I, it's not a skillful path, but I'm very glad that you can see that you're doing it. That self-understanding is the path forward. So that's great. So, uh, taking what's not giving. Um, so in colloquial English, we say uh, avoid stealing. And... Um, there's ways that we do it. Um, you know, the uh, one way or other, one of the reasons not to steal is because it causes harm. The issue of harm is the prime, you know, pivot or the prime uh, consideration or valuation for ethics in Buddhism. Um, does it cause harm? And generally, uh, cause uh, stealing harms someone, and um, so you know certainly harms the person you're stealing from. Um, but then the question is, does it harm you yourself? Uh, if you manage to steal something that was brought you pleasure, um, is there harm still that you that you experience in the stealing and having that? And. Um, and I think the, gen- the answer that Buddhism will offer is that the person who steals has to uh, do something like you experienced, has to contract, has to tighten up, has to shut down, has to not be uh, in an emp- empathic relationship with the people they're, they're stealing from. And so all those things involve suffering on the part of the person who's stealing. Uh, they might be blinded from that, they might not be be trained or sensitive to the consequence of themselves, but Buddhism analysis would be the harm is going in both directions. And sooner or later, uh, if they practice, it'll come back and, uh, and show itself to them. Um, I stole a, jam, a jar of jam in 1968 from a supermarket. And um, I still remember it and I still feel bad about it, having done that. You know, still, you know, it's not like, I'm, you know, it's not like 68, right? It's long ago. Enough already. <laughs> and, um, but uh, I've forgotten a lot of things over my lifetime. But I haven't forgotten that, and I don't feel good about it. When I think about it, I feel certain, you know, discomfort inside of me. So in that sense, uh, if you added up the pleasure of eating that jam, 
and the pain of all these memories over the last you know 45 years however long it's been um, probably the scales tip dramatically in the in the in the direction of of um, you know of the pain that I've experienced rather than the pleasure so that in general I think the teachings in Buddhism is that uh, sooner or later your memory the legacy the bodily sensations of your unethical actions will come and affect you if you're developing higher sensitivity developing mindfulness so for people who cultivate mindfulness it's a part of the healthy wise growth in the practice that sooner or later you might have to face some of your ethical transgressions in the past and have to deal with them and look at them and come to terms with them and so uh, the precept of taking out what's given can evoke that in you oh yeah <coughs> jam <laughs> you know or it could be something else right <clears throat> all kinds of things that uh, down through the time um at the level of sila, the, the ethical training, I mean, at, at just at ethics itself, um, uh, ethics is sometimes just uh, treated as a rule. As a, just do this, because if you do this, we create a better society. Just do this, and you protect yourself, you're safer. Um, do this, it's just basic decency to do this. And um, <clears throat> uh, it's mostly called a precept of restraint. It's what you're, not, actually not what you do, it's what you're not going to do, you're not going to steal. And so um, that the idea of restraint in the precepts is an important one because um, uh, it might be hard to know what the wise thing to do is, but it's not so, so difficult to understand what not to do. And so, you know, how do we, you know, when to be generous, how to be generous, what to be generous with, those are kind of maybe difficult questions. But um, what, to, what not to steal, how much not to steal, <laughs> you know, who not to steal from, you know, just don't steal, right? That's, you know, it's much more clear. So, um, we've been here for an hour now. Do you need a bathroom break? Or would you like to go for another 15, 20 minutes? A little bit longer, you okay with that? Your bladders are okay? Okay. So I think it would be nice at this point is for you to uh, pair up with someone else. And um, in a very... Uh, unspecified way uh, share with a person that you're with uh, your relationship to this concept of not stealing or stealing um, and this is you don't have to confess anything you don't have to reveal your deep dark secrets around this um, but what what, what 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 are some of the or maybe you can just say it in very general terms um, uh, you know, once in my life there was this issue of this sweet thing that I took that I shouldn't have taken rather than the jam. <laughs> and um, something. But um, uh, what is your relationship to this? What, what has this evoked so far, this conversation? Uh, the feelings, the ideas, associations. Uh, what history do you have in your life around... Uh, this concept of stealing, what are some of the influences in your life, your experience in your life that come into play when you think about it, this, your relationship to this precept now. So it's a very open-ended topic. And so I'm not looking for something specific, but rather look and see what your heart or mind, uh, what comes out of it as you share on this topic. So two of you might say very different things. Does that make some sense? So what I'd like to propose is this. 
that um, each of you uh, have five minutes to speak while the other one just listens. And I'll ring a bell after five minutes and you switch. And then the other one has a chance to talk, to have a monologue on the same topic. And then I'll ring the bell again and then you can have more of an ordinary conversation back and forth. Either debriefing about that, following up on that, going back and forth and just see what what more you'd like to uh, talk about as a, as a pair. For those of you who have never had these kinds of uh, paired conversations, one-on-one conversations here, um, when one person is doing the monologue, it's meant to be an exploration on the part of the person who's speaking. And the, and the person who's supposed to benefit from the exploration is the person speaking. So uh, in ordinary conversation, ordinary conversation we're talking, you know, at least explicitly, or the usual way of understanding it, uh, for the purpose of the person listening. We're trying to convey something to the person who's listening. Um, you're not trying to convey anything to the person who's listening. The person who's listening <coughs> is your witness for you as you do this in, uh, exploration on your own. What it means is that if you have a long story about uh, the supermarket you took the gem from and what you did with it and, you know, you know the story. Don't spend the five minutes with a long story. You know, get to the point kind of quickly. The purpose of the, ref- uh, the reflection is for your own benefit, not for the person listening. Make sense? So it's a little hard to do because our usual conversational way is so much focused on the other person as the participant. So any questions about that? Okay. So why don't you uh, find someone you'd like to sit with and talk. And if, if you don't find someone easily, walk towards the front and uh, I'll help if there's a um, odd number. Late, I don't know if um, you'd covered as one of the aspects of things not given, but I've heard you cover it previously, which is taking time. Mm-hmm. Taking, taking time. others' time that's not uh, freely given. T- taking people's attention or time. Yeah. Um, the other topic that came up was um, judgment in relation to stealing. And again, whether it was ethical or not, or what situations it might, it might, Great. might be, as in to save one's good, good stealing one. for one's you. children's lives. Judgment. How do we decide when it's stealing and when it's deserved? Is there a gray line? I mean, that's the issue with the PG&E, right? That's, that's what she's bringing up. You know, is it, you know... If, Supplies at work. Hmm? Supplies at work, you work extra hours. Supplies at work, you work extra hours, and certainly you deserve. So I, I should break into a chorus from Les Miserables because that was, that was <laughs> one of the things that Jean Valjean, of course, came up for me. Would you steal because you were starving or because your family was starving? So the, the nuanced stuff is of more interest to me all the time because I think it, it is more relevance to my life. I don't... You're, you're starving? No. <laughs> Do I look like I'm starving? <laughs> um, I'll share my lunch. I mean, I don't... <laughs> Thank you for being generous. Uh, I steal people's ideas all the time. 
because ideas are floating around, and we take them from each other, and sometimes when I can give credit where credit's due, I will, but very often I don't remember. Where did I hear that? Where did I read that? And so I will sort of incorporate it as my own from time to time. And then we had a delightful conversation, and and we got into the issue of judgment, but um, it was judging other people which in some ways we were able to connect to stealing from our ability to be uh, either in the present moment with that person while, while we're judging them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably not, not uh, remembering everything we said, but it, that's sort of where we wound up, uh, or the topic wound up for us. Stealing from the present moment. I suppose our mind steals from ourselves regularly. <laughs> I didn't offer you my attention. <laughs> why, why did you take me away? <laughs> that reminds me then of the other thing, at least for me, was I, I feel that I am far too free with uh, telling other people how to live their lives and fixing all their problems and giving them the benefit of my opinion when I've never been asked in the first place to do so. And so that definitely is offering, is taking something, doing something I, yeah. that wasn't offered to me. And I'm not, not so great on the restraint yeah. end of that. Well, I'm happy to hear uh, a lot of these kinds of concerns that these topics come up. Um, and this, the higher standard is, things, you know, if this, I, I imagine no one's asking whether or not you steal it from a bank. You know, this is more nuanced, I suppose. Uh, I'm inspired by uh, the example of Buddhist monastics. Not that we have to do it exactly this way, but the example for me is that if a Buddhist monastic comes into your home, uh, one who's well-trained following these precepts would not pick up a book on the coffee table, wouldn't touch anything unless it's clearly been offered. You can look at the book or... Or if they, you know, when monks come and stay with me, I basically offer them the house. I say, here. <laughs> that way it's kind of a blanket check they can, you know go to my bookcase and take books down or something. But, but if without clear offer, uh, monastics won't even touch you know, something which conventionally, you, know, you go in someone's home and it's a coffee book table, uh, co- a coffee, uh, uh, coffee table book, you know, it's meant to be looked at, right? And you don't hesitate. And maybe you don't have to hesitate, but uh, that spirit of being that careful, I think, is uh, inspiring for me. Um, I guess I kind of um, in my conversation was sort of different in some way in that I was equating um, stealing with something very much more subtle which has to do with having desires and connecting um, uh, wanting something or desiring something and then looking at what's empty in me where I can't be with that Yes, that would make me want to go and desire Great. to take something, even if it's a very subtle thing, even if it's something that I'm seeing that, you know, um, very subtle in that way. Great. So to look at the underlying motivation for the action, and and in the form of desire and what's going on there with that having that desire and what's motivating it. Great, beautiful. So one more, and then we'll take a break. I think it's kind of related to the comment that was just made. Oh, that was re- it's related to the comment that was just made in something that you said earlier. But just in general, about 
not just stealing, but um, acting ethically, is that, um, so, you know, every morning I, I, I take refuge, and I, I, I notice that, um, you know, depending on the morning, there's a different quality to, to that refuge. Sometimes there's a deep sense of connection and reverence, and sometimes it just seems like I'm just mouthing the words. And, and um, so when, when there's that deep sense of connection, there's a sense of, like, fullness and connection. And I don't need the world to... I don't need things so much to fulfill me, you know. And, um, but when it's kind of shallow then I start looking for things, right? And it seems like there's... Um, then I need things outside of me to... Right? And, yeah. and it seems like... So when I act in ways that... Um, I was just sharing how I got into an argument the other day, and the next morning, there wasn't any sense of connection because I, I felt constricted, like you had said earlier. And so, like, I can justify taking pens and batteries and whatever, which I do all the time. But um, it seems like there's an effect on that level of the heart yes. connecting to Dharma. Uh-huh. So. Yes, and, uh, the, and the, as practice deepens or we f- fill out even more, I think the sensitivity around these issues becomes greater. Yeah. Great, so thank you. Great, so let's take a break for 15 minutes and uh, then we'll come back and for a second session. Um, to look a little bit more at this issue of training as a, as a support for ethics. So I'm I'm divided today. I'm dividing up the exploration of this first of the second precept, not taking what is not given, into three areas. What's called the three trainings. So the first is a training in ethics in and of itself, which um, I take to be a little bit more rule-based, that it's, a good, it's good to live this way, not to steal. And, um, uh, but that to only leave it at a rule-based approach uh, can actually not only, uh, uh, I don't know if it can be counterproductive, but uh, it can uh, lead to deleterious effects because rules without the inner growth and inner development and inner understanding can lead to becoming quite rigid and quite self-righteous and uh, judgmental and, and, uh, and cause, you know, kind of force our rules in other people. Um, and that's why we have the second uh, training, which is uh, uh, training the heart, the inner cultivation and development, inner growth. And, um, and so... Uh, Ethics in Buddhism also involves this inner growth, inner transformation. And so looking at the second precepts from the point of view of a training, how do we train ourselves? What kind of training? Uh, well, how do we uh, support our, uh, our avoidance, our restraint from taking what's not given? And um, rather than it being rules, it may, it's about changing ourselves who are less likely to steal because of how we are inside. Um, some people need the strong rules. Some people, um, uh, that's what they respond to. Some people are, live so much on the edge of living an unethical life that without a very clear-cut rules to live by, uh, they too, they're too tempted and slide off easily. Uh, sometimes having really st- strong rules to live by, um, uh, where you come up against the boundary of that rule, 
becomes a wonderful mirror where we stop and look at ourselves. If we have kind of a nuanced idea, well, you know, generally, it's a good idea not to steal. But, you know, there are gray areas, and the more I think about it, the gr- broader the gray areas are exactly what, you know, what's given, you know, you know and, and so, you know, the, the pencils were kind of offered, the printer was kind of offered, the, all the computers in the office were, well, you know, they're kind of like a pencil, they're kind of offered. <laughs> In fact, the whole building was, you know, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a non-profit, you know, it belongs to everyone. And you know, whether it's, a, we keep it in my house or keep it at the, at the office building, it's, you know, you know, it's not really stealing, it's just storing it in a different place. Um, so I'm trying to say this, you know, that this idea that, but, but you have, you know, you don't steal. You, there's no gray area. Sometimes forces us to look at ourselves to understand ourselves. What's going on in me when I want to go across? Why am I making these nuanced arguments? What's motivating me? Uh, what is the, <clears throat> the impulses? What are the emotions that are operating when I want to steal? Uh, when it's nuanced and we can easily cross the line, uh, then it doesn't work as such a strong mirror for ourselves. So the second aspect of <clears throat> today is um, the actual training part <clears throat> It involves uh, both looking at ourselves to understand ourselves more deeply and also to make ourselves a vehicle that's, uh, or make us ourselves more empathic, more sensitive, to develop our ethical sensitivity. So in a sense, <clears throat> our heart knows what to do. We don't have to uh, use our minds or u- use rules to do that. So with that as a background, I'd like to do another meditation. And um, <clears throat> be somewhat similar to the one we did earlier, but uh, <clears throat> so as not to uh, worry you about what's going to come. Um, I'm not going to uh, pop a, a difficult concept on you, you know, a jarring or harsh concept like stealing. So you can be, you can, you, know, you can, you know, and I'll try to pronounce the words right. So, taking a comfortable, alert posture. Gently closing your eyes. And then take a moment, take a few moments here to Check in with yourself. In this present moment, as a lived present moment experience, how are you right now? How are you in your body? How are you in your heart? your emotions, mood. And how are you in your mind with your thinking and mental activity?
and then gently see if you can relax all of it. Sometimes relaxing or letting go, softening on the exhale is helpful. Maybe taking a deep breath and then exhaling and letting go, settling in. Sometimes it's helpful if your mindfulness, your awareness, can relate to what's happening as if it's okay. To be permissive or allowing what's there. To feel a sense of okayness as you settle in with whatever is present. Scanning, sweeping your attention through your body, starting at the top. See if some of the various places of your body, if you can progressively relax. So maybe beginning with the forehead and the eyes. Maybe as you exhale, have a softening. If you can't relax, maybe a gentling around the forehead and the eyes. A softening around the mouth and jaw. Sometimes when we're progressively relaxing, it's enough to have an almost very minuscule movement of release. Almost, maybe even so little, it's almost like an imagination of softening, relaxing, letting go. And softening around the neck. The top of the shoulders. As you exhale, to bring some softening into the, to the middle of the shoulders. <coughs> to soften around the chest and the heart.
and then to soften the belly. Perhaps there can be some release in the arms and the hands. And down your legs, softening the thighs, the legs, the calves. And as you exhale, <clears throat> see if you can relax your thinking mind as if it's a muscle. Relax the thinking muscle. And then feel the movements of your rib cage and your diaphragm and your belly as you breathe. The expansion, the contraction. And then as if it's you're getting a massage from the inside, let yourself settle in and relax inward as you feel the expanding and contracting movements as you feel the opening and closing.
come back to yourself, into your body, as if your physical body is an organ of perception or organ of sensing. Settle into the sensing, the sensate experience of being in a body. and bringing your attention to your heart area. As you breathe, imagine you're breathing in and out through the heart center. And as you breathe in, it opens. It opens to a heightened sensitivity, more available, more present.
And then as you continue sitting here, continue the best you can to tune into your body, the sensations of your body, feelings in your body, how your body is. A heightened interest in your bodily experience. for reflection, if you stay in touch with your body in this way, or even more so if you had experience of being more sensitive, how can you use your bodily experience or what guidance or what information does your body provide that help you find your way to the precept of not taking what is not given? In what way does does the body support for this precept? If you stay in touch with your body, stay aware of your body, in what way can the body be a support for the, for being generous, for for generosity? What guidance does the body give?
If you keep your physical experience, sensations, quality of your body in the regards to tension and the absence of tension. Stay tuned into your body. What guidance does the body provide for non-clinging? What, what, you, what can you tune into in your body that supports non-clinging? So, imagine, maybe it's a science fiction book, that there is this planet somewhere, people, and one of uh, the strong beliefs in this culture is that rules are really bad. There should be no rules whatsoever. Ever. And as people grow up and are ready to become adults, just like in California, when you, if you're going to get a driver's license as a teenager, you have to go to driver's ed. In this country, in order to become an adult and be off in society on your own, you have to go to body mindfulness ed. You have to develop a heightened sensitivity to your body, heightened awareness of your body. And when you pass the um, body awareness exam, then uh, you're, you get the you know, little card that says you now can go be an adult. Because now they know that uh, you will live an ethical life 
without having those rules that they don't want to have. So, in what way, or what are the ways that awareness and mindfulness of the body, heightened body awareness, supports, and maybe even if there's enough sensitivity, guarantees that a person will be ethical, or specifically, will uh, will abide, will not take what is not given. That's the question. What, in what ways does mindfulness of the body support or even guarantee that a person will not take what is not given? Some ex- understand the question. So what I thought would be nice is for you to uh, break into groups of five and, um, and uh, suggest some ideas of how this works. Uh, I ask of you, don't come up with the exceptions. Don't come up with how it's not doesn't work or how it's not enough. That's not the exercise. <clears throat> that can be for later if you want. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> this is only an exercise in how it works. How this, you know, how it might work, or the different ways it works that mindfulness of the body supports um, not taking what is not given. And w- what I suggest you do is that uh, you keep your comments uh, to one at a time, and somewhat relatively brief, j- just enough to really convey what you want to say, but no more than one idea at a time. <clears throat> so the next person has a chance to say one idea. And so it comes back all the way around the circle to you, and then you can offer a second idea of your own. But this time, you've been influenced by what you've heard. New ideas come up, new perspectives, new something. And so, and that'll happen to everyone else, is that the, the, what you hear from the other people will influence what you say, what you understand, what you think about. And, um, and that kind of process, group process, of affecting each other and exploring together, uh, will unfold in the course of the time. Make some sense? So I don't know if we're multiples of five here. <clears throat> so I wonder if we could have a few people um, share from the different groups a little bit uh, your impressions of what that was like for you to be in the group, what came up for you, and what happened in the groups. I know one group took notes. So, <laughs> so maybe we should have them go last so that they, they don't intimidate everyone else. <laughs> yes. And it, also, I keep forgetting, but we say names before we, when you start. So we, right, right here. My name is Sarah. I just want to say I wish we had more time because the conversation was getting really rich at the very end. I know, I know. Well, you can continue. You can go with your group for lunch, for example. Oh, that was the summary. <laughs> Bye. My name is Steve. I was not appointed by the group to speak for anybody. So something came up in our group. Some other people mentioned uh, uh, 
a linking desire to this uh, whole situation. I hadn't been thinking about that. And I have lots of desires, and if I, if I think I find the solution, I also find that uh, the new car doesn't last very long. <clears throat> and that I, I can link that for myself to stealing. If I were to steal the new car, that wouldn't last very long either. So <laughs> sort of what's the point? You know, <laughs> do something else. So stealing, the satisfaction of uh, whatever it is, the pleasure of stealing, it's not going to last so long. So maybe you need to look not at the things of the world that you can steal, but rather the underlying impulse, the desire. And maybe some other change is needed. That's exactly what I meant. I wish I'd said it like that. <laughs> you know, the um, <clears throat> there's a great <clears throat> story of Mullah Nazardeen. Mullah Nazardeen is living in a small house, <clears throat> little, and every day he lives, uh, he ha- eats beans for for his meals, three meals a day, beans, 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 and um, and then his neighbor, who's wealthy, uh, comes to him and says. Uh, Mullah, you know, you, you know, you must be getting tired of beans all the time. Uh, if you just go and, like I have, go and kiss up to the king, then um, he'll provide you with extra money and you can have a bit better food. And then the Mullah says to the king, uh, to, to, the, to his neighbor, he says, um, uh, if you just learn to uh, enjoy beans, you wouldn't have to kiss up to the king. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if no one speaks, I'm left in the dark. What happened in the groups? Are we ready for the report? Because you think you'll get away with not having to do anything then? <laughs> the rest of you? <laughs> Let's see if anybody else wants to say something. Yes, please. So, what people... After a while, it seemed uh, this is sort of boring. And, um, and then I just made a decision, well, you know, why don't you just keep keep going and then it got um, it got exciting and great and, and fun so what concepts we came up with was um, um, you know it's, it's no no um, it's um, you know really easy to be aware and know what to do and all you have to do is um, get enough sleep um, eat well <laughs> talk to people meditate um, <laughs> did I mention exercise every day um, and you know do all the basics and then you know then you're you're good to go you can you can figure out what's going on you can feel it's, it and you, and you just know it just takes it's true it doesn't take long it doesn't take long but it's true that people are more, are more likely to do unethical things when they're tired hungry and sleepy it's a it's a sometimes a condition for it Uh, yeah, I'd like to get into the science of it. And they've shown that people are really busy. If their mind's really busy, they're typically more ethical. They're more ethical. More ethical. If their mind is not busy thinking about this problem, but busy doing a task, you know. And yeah. then 
and then, you know, um, that what scientists have done is had them play games where they give money to their partner and then try to do math problems at the same time. And if they keep them busy, they're more generous. Oh, nice. So um, if, you're enge- if, you're, if you engage nicely in life, then maybe you're more... So that's what they say, right? That uh, uh, you, the last thing you want is a bored group of high school boys. But I think the point is, if we spend time weighing the decision, we'll typically get it wrong. But if we feel the decision, we'll typically get it right. Mm, It's nice. Nice. Yeah. So let's have the report. (laughs) 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 From the secretary. See, we talked about the role of contentment in um, supporting, specifically not taking what is not given, but in general ethics, and how being mindful of the body helps us realize when we're content and not content. Um, how the impulse to be stingy or to take can kind of grate, and when we're content, we're happy to receive, but we don't need to receive. Um, a couple of people mentioned how um, there's this sort of buildup, like it feels, it just feels bad to go outside of ethics when we're really tapped into our heart and our gut. And feeling the tension before doing something that um, one might know is a bad idea. And sometimes overriding it anyway, overriding that tension in the body. Um, we also talked about the role of empathy in ethics so that it's somehow easier to take from a faceless corporation or a faceless group than an individual and kind of wondered about what that was about um, considering larger ramifications being one way to kind of um, maybe not do that what's upstream and downstream let's see And then there was quite a conversation around this notion of um, giving time and space to ourselves, allowing more space for um, whether or not we're going to let the ego just sort of jump out and do something, take something, and how quickly that can happen. Um, One person talked about, for example, um, Jacques Verdun's work, where they talk about the number of years or centuries a group of men might have served and comparing that to the number of minutes that they contemplated what they did that got them in jail to begin with. Um, and the last thing was how um, mindfulness of the body can naturally lead to restraint. So it's around food, but could also lead to restraint in other areas. Mm-hmm. Well, great. So... What I was hoping this would convey is that it's possible to train the Buddhist, the kind of the usual Buddhist word, or cultivate uh, a heightened sense of uh, sensitivity, heightened ethical sensitivity that comes out of a heightened awareness of the body. So uh, you don't have to be become more take a class in the, in the ethical philosophy to know what's right and wrong. Um, but if you are in touch with yourself in a deep way, you'll notice things. Uh, you'll get the, you get, generally, you'll get a lot of information from your body 
but what feels good and doesn't feel good. Uh, you might, you'll notice what it feels like to cling. And that clinging generally doesn't feel good. You know what it's like to, no, to non-cling. The chances are to take something which is not given requires clinging to something. And that impulse and that desire to be caught in that desire um, uh, generally takes some, t- t- uh, requires some tension, some strain in, in the system. And uh, I think someone who's already living a very stressed and busy life might not pick up on the strain that, that their stealing might have. But uh, as we get more and more sensitive, like through meditation, more connected to our body, connected to our hearts, um, it starts feeling a, it's a, you know, a transgression to oneself to do certain actions because of <clears throat> what, what the consequence on us, independent of the consequences to the people around us, uh, you know, it's deleterious to us to have this tension, this stress, this contraction build up. As we become, uh, 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 as we cultivate more being calm and relaxed and centered in our body, there's also a greater capacity for empathy. Empathy, the vehicle for empathy has a lot to do with the, the, uh, all our senses being open to pick up all the cues coming from the environment. Some people will say it requires the heart to be open. And so the more empathy we have, the more um, also we tend to be more ethical because we understand the consequences not on us, but the consequences in other people. And it doesn't feel good to us um, to have other people in pain. It feels off, it feels wrong. The, um, and then we have also by tuning into our body and our heart and how things actually feel, we can also feel the benefits of being generous. That generosity, uh, when done in a wise way, is uplifting, is inspiring, is enlivening, is freeing, and supports this kind of purity of non-clinging that we can feel inside of us. And so these, these reference points inside can become stronger and stronger. So um, part of the very important part of the mindful approach to ethical training is to, in fact, to cultivate the sensitivity so that ethics doesn't become a rule-based, but rather becomes, um, we can say wisdom-based, but becomes um, guided by our nature, nature-based perhaps, by our character. Yes? I just wanted to add one thing to um, Dawn's very good uh, summary and note-taking. And it was something that you said at the sort of... Uh, at the end of our conversation, you turned this concept on its head and, it's, and said that it is also an ethical issue to give what is not asked for. And I thought that was a really right on target as well. Nice. <clears throat> so anything else on this so far? Anything you want to bring up, ask, or say <clears throat> before going for lunch, please? Um, I haven't quite formulated it and your clearly. Name. Your name. What? Your name. Oh, my name is Yuichi. Hi. Um, um, so you've been talking about this body, um, awareness of the body and ethics and so on. But I, and I know you asked us not to look, contemplate exceptions. But as I was listening, I was thinking of um, certain activities that do lead to tension. But that, like, let's say, I'm um, doing math or something. Yeah. 
You know, so they lead to tension in the body, but they also lead to this larger release sometimes. And so I kind of wondered if you had thoughts on that. Um, because to me, a society that was built, I know this is hypothetical, you know, it was a thought experiment, but it, I could almost see like it, it deterring people from engaging in difficult challenges that, that would ne- necessarily have tense tension in the process. Uh-huh. I think maybe we have to define what tension is and be careful about what tension is. Um, <clears throat> if, you, uh, if someone wants to uh, build shelter for their family, um, it might take a lot of effort and by the end of the day, the, their muscles are sore and they're kind of tense from you know, using all the heavier work, right? But the results is shelter for the family. Uh, someone else might be building a house next door and uh, they also get sore, but they get sore because not only are they working hard, but they're also clinging to the outcome, clinging to what they're doing, tr- trying to make sure that everyone notices they're a better builder than the person, their neighbor who's building their house. And there's all this other act, a- added a clinging on top of it. It's the clinging which is considered the problem in Buddhism, not necessarily tension. So I think that... Uh, Tension comes with a lot of activities in their life. It is you know, naturally to be tense in certain kind of ways, certain situations. But uh, is there clinging as part of it? And is attention necessary? And does a person have the capacity to experience a very deep sense of relaxation? Uh, because the deeper the relaxation that we can experience, the better reference point we have for understanding when tension is useful and not useful. And sometimes it's also a matter of sacrifice. It could be that given, uh, like when, like when I, I spent you know, all these years in monasteries, my mind was very peaceful and calm. And then I went to graduate school. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I recognized that my mind became more agitated uh, in graduate school than it had been when I was in the monasteries. And I just said, well, this is part of the deal in being graduate school. You know, maybe if I was you know, more mature my practice, I wouldn't have it, but I've set myself the course to do this thing, so I'll just live with, a, I'll just live with you know, a little bit more agitated mind. So, so sometimes, you know, we make that kind of valuation. So with your, with, you know, with your, with your math problem, you know, maybe if you were a little bit better mathematician, <laughs> or, you know, a stronger practitioner or something, maybe you wouldn't have to have the tension but given your circumstances and that you have to do the problem, you'll live with attention. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is this helpful, you think? Or you're not to the point? Um, I think it's helpful. I was just maybe stuck too much on the thought experiment issue. Because, so like, from your argument, if one, so for example, if I'm not... Or, Maybe I shouldn't. Well, if I'm not good enough at something, or as a practitioner, or as a math, or something, then um, maybe sometimes there's value in um, even having the clinging, or, or dealing with the clinging. I'm thinking, like there can yeah, yeah there, there can be value in clinging if the alternative is worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then if I were living in a society where, not that you you proclaimed that. Clinging should be bad, yeah. but if it was purely body-based, it just seems like 
it would easily lead to kind of this um, non, you know, non-striving society. Maybe, uh, maybe not. It, uh, I found in myself wonderful wellsprings of motivation from my uh, relaxed sense of freedom. Um, because, you know, the mind, the heart wants to respond, wants to, you know, and so I don't have any shortage of motivation, you know, but, I, you know, I, I'm, you know, generally pretty relaxed about the outcome or what I do, but... Um, so, you know, the, uh, so the, the point being that two things here is one is that just paying attention to your body carefully and developing a capacity constantly come back and refer back to your body and what's going on will give you a lot of information. Um, and, and one of the things the information it'll give you is whether you're tense. And then when you know you're tense, what are you going to do about that? Maybe in some situations you justify it. You know, the mountain lion's chasing you. you it's not the time to kind of relax. <laughs> you know, there's times when it's appropriate maybe. And so... But uh, maybe you realize that some of the tension you carry is not always... Because some people, it's chronic, right? It's one thing to have tension doing one math problem. It's one thing to have gotten tense at the math problem and then stayed tense for the next 10 years. Which, in a certain kind of way, people do. They build up from one event, but they build up tension. They live with it all the time. So it's possible to cultivate a greater sense of capacity to relax, ability to relax. And so we're more fluid. And my argument is that the more relaxed we are, um, not that we have to be completely relaxed all the time, but even the capacity to be able to relax deeply, like in meditation, uh, will help us become more sensitive, to help us to understand what's going on with ourselves better. And as we understand better what's going on, um, the assumption is you'll be more ethical. And so this is a kind of a, not 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 a would, would be another 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 um, uh, source for ethical action that is not rule-based, would be... And it, uh, and it wouldn't just be feeling... I say, I say it this way. Uh, it, it isn't just intuition-based. I know what's right. You know, it's, uh, it's, you're actually in touch with something concrete and direct that uh, gives you some very useful and direct uh, concrete information that's different than intuition. I guess maybe you're getting to this in the afternoon, but the part that seemed missing was the reason-based. Ah. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's the, that's the, yeah, it is a little bit in the afternoon. That's the wisdom and the understanding. So they, I was trying to keep it separated. But here for Sarah. I just wonder if you're, it sounds like you're equating mindfulness of the body with relaxation. No. Okay. But, but uh, not, I'm not equating it, but um, the more relaxed the body is, the, the easier it is to be uh, aware of the full range of sensations in the body. A tense body doesn't feel much. A relaxed body tends to feel more, has a wider range of sensitivity. If I, if I hold my hand tight like this, you know, it's very different what's available to me than if I go like that. It's okay, so we should stop for lunch. You know, and uh, at twelve thirty seems like the limit for stopping for lunch. Otherwise, we're taking what's not given. <laughs> your, your time. Some of you are impatient to go. You have things to do. 
So um, we'll, we'll start again here at 1.30. And uh, those of you who know the place know how to set up tables. I don't know if you want to sit outside. If it's warm enough, but you're welcome to take tables and chairs out there or set them up here in the hallway. And, uh, and then just make sure everything's packed away before 1.30 and cleaned up, and then we'll start here at 1.30. Thank you.